Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall learn about the legacy of RBG from her time before and as Justice of the Supreme Court, as well as the fight ahead against the threat of an unbreakable, extreme conservative majority on the court. Clips today are from Democracy Now!, the Tom Hartman Program, the Majority Report, and Last Week Tonight. We continue to look at the life and legacy of Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who by the end of her life was internationally known simply by her initials, RBG, or as one best-selling biography put it, the notorious RBG. In a 2018 documentary film about her legal career, personal history, and unexpected celebrity premiered at Sundance and became a surprise smash hit. It's called RBG. This is the film's trailer. I ask no favor for my sex. All I ask of our brethren is that they take their feet off our necks. We welcome today Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. She's become such an icon. Do you mind signing this copy? I am 84 years old, and everyone wants to take a picture with me. <laughs> Notorious RBG. Yeah, yeah. When you come right down to it, the closest thing to a superhero I know. Ruth Bader Ginsburg changed the way the world is for American women. I became a lawyer when women were not wanted by the legal profession. Thousands of state and federal laws discriminated on the basis of gender. She was following in the footsteps of the battle for racial equality. She wanted equal protection for women. Men and women are persons of equal dignity and they should count equally before the law. She captured for the male members of the court what it was like to be a second-class citizen. The point is that the discriminatory line almost inevitably hurts women. I did see myself as kind of a kindergarten teacher in those days because the judges didn't think sex discrimination existed. I have had the great good fortune to share life with a partner truly extraordinary for his generation. He was the first boy I ever knew who cared that I had a brain. She is a center of power on and off the court. Every time Justice Ginsburg wrote a dissent, the internet would explode. I came up with a couple slogans. You can't spell truth without Ruth. I surely would not be in this room today without the determined efforts of men and women who kept dreams alive. That's the trailer for the Oscar-nominated documentary RBG. In this clip from the film, Justice Ginsburg talks about the first time she argued before the Supreme Court in the case Frontiero v. Richardson in 1972, centering on a female Air Force lieutenant who'd been denied the same housing and medical benefits as her male colleagues. Ginsburg argued the Air Force's statute for housing allowances treated women as inferior, and the Supreme Court ruled in her favor eight to one. It was not a single question. I just went on speaking, and I, at the time, wondered, are they just indulging me and not listening? Or am I telling them something they haven't heard before, and are they paying attention? The justices were just glued to her. I don't think they were expecting to have to deal with something as powerful as a sheer force of her argument that was just all-encompassing. And they were there to talk about a little statute in the, in the government code. I mean, it was, it was just—we we seized the moment to change American society. In asking the court to declare sex a suspect criterion, we urge a position forcibly stated in 1837 by Sarah Grimke noted abolitionist and advocate of equal rights for men and women. She said, I ask no favor for my sex. All I ask, I ask of, our, of brethren our brethren is that they take their feet off our necks. 
Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And we're joined by Julie Cohen, who, along with Betsy West, is director and producer of the Academy Award-nominated documentary, RBG. Julie, welcome back to Democracy Now! Um, we had you on when the film premiered at the Sundance Film Festival. We had you on through the health challenges that Justice Ginsburg has faced, and now, sadly, today, uh, in the aftermath of her death. Can you talk about um, the, what we don't know about Ruth Bader Ginsburg, how she was shaped, her early years and those cases she argued before the Supreme Court? Um, sure. I need to gather myself a bit, because actually listening to that, uh, those clips of uh, Justice Ginsburg uh, feel a bit emotional in this context. I haven't been able to watch the film again since hearing of, um, of her death on Friday evening. Um, and just listening to that quiet but centered and super determined voice is, uh, it, 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 I, I, I found it moving uh, in, in life, and now that she's passed away, uh, is moving as well. Um, Justice Ginsburg was shaped hugely, uh, like many of us are, uh, by her mother. Um, you know, both her parents were from immigrant families, uh, both from extremely modest uh, backgrounds. Um, and uh, RBG's mom, at the time she was uh, Ruth Bader, obviously, um, got cancer when Ruth Bader was in high school um, and was quite ill for a period of time. Um, and RBG was so close to her mother um, and so saddened by her mom's impending death. But her mother really used the opportunity to impart a lot of life lessons uh, to a young Ruth Bader to really instill in her a deep, deep uh, ambition, a desire to put her all into education. You know, her mom told her, like, go find love. For sure, that's important. But like, don't you need to be independent. Like, don't rely on a man to bring you what you need in your life. You actually need to make sure you can fend for yourself. Um, and she also had sort of some life philosophies, which were, uh, you know, basically, there's, there, don't waste your time on useless emotions, anger, envy, like for guilt, you know, for, for, forget, forget those things. Um, and, um, RBG really took that advice to heart. Um, I'm not saying she never got angry. Surely she did. Everyone, everyone does. But her inclination, based on what her mom had said, was always to moderate that anger and really to try not to show it, to look for uh, peace and conciliation and civility wherever she could find it, you know. We spoke to her in our in our documentary. We had a number of clips of her arguing those early cases for gender equality uh, before the Supreme Court in the 1970s. She's arguing at this point before this group of nine male justices who you have to put yourself in the context of back in that time. Like the yeah, women's women's rights, like when, when it first came out, people really didn't get it. Like, I, I don't understand. What are women complaining about? We open the door for them. We treat them very politely. We give them rings when we propose to them. Like, we just don't we just don't see why a woman would be complaining about her treatment in any way. And they often not only were obtuse about her arguments, but were also quite condescending to her while she was, you know, here she is, an esteemed lawyer arguing cases before the highest court in the land. And they're kind of like making fun of her at times. And she just took it, you know, like water off a duck's back. She never let that condescension get her down. She told, she told us that she liked to think of herself as a kindergarten teacher. Not just a teacher, but a kindergarten teacher. And that's how she, she, she looked at these Supreme Court justices as kindergarten students who just needed to be schooled. And she did indeed school them and I think, you know, moved on later in, uh, later in her career and as she'd become this public figure of the notorious RBG to kind of uh, schooling a lot of us, not only about legal and constitutional principles, but about how to handle the uh, tricky emotional challenges that come up for all of us, particularly people that are fighting for their rights. And uh, the case United States versus Virginia, the cases also where—and we're going to talk about this in, in a minute—where she used a man to demonstrate um, what inequality was all about. 
Yeah, I mean, such a clever, you know, she was a deeply strategic person. She was not choosing what cases to pursue just on a whim or like, that sounds like a good, cool case. She was thinking like, how might I win? And by the way, she was very consciously modeling her strategy after one that had happened 10 or 15 years before she was arguing her cases with the string of Supreme Court cases argued by a young Thurgood Marshall before he was a justice, when he was a young lawyer taking cases for racial equality. Uh, Thurgood Marshall, I believe, argued more than 30 cases before the Supreme Court, had had an extraordinary uh, win record. And the reason that he achieved so much for racial equality and for forwarding the idea of racial equality under the 14th Amendment of the Constitution, particularly, was by being strategic. He did not take every case. He looked at cases that he thought were winnable and like incremental, like one little step at a time. Justice Ginsburg was a student of what Supreme Court jurisprudence. She was aware of what Thurgood Marshall had achieved. And when she started to look into gender equality cases, she wanted to be like Thurgood Marshall in terms of picking cases very strategically. And it occurred to her that there were a number of ways having to do, I mean, Stephen Weissenfeld is going to tell you about his own case having to do with the death benefits that a man gets as a widower versus what a woman would get as as a widow, that there, there were instances where, you know, or, or like, you know, say a man having leave for childcare, that kind of thing, that there were instances where men also were victimized by gender discrimination. And her view was like, people should be taken on their own terms. Like, let's view people as individuals, not as representatives of their gender. And she thought that was going to be a point that might be able to sink in to some of these male justices who just hadn't thought through the idea about women's rights at all. And finally, 30 seconds, Julie, on your thoughts on her passing and what happens next. I'm incredibly sad about her passing. I would hope, as I know Justice Ginsburg hoped, that some of these fiery dissents that she's been writing, particularly over the past 10 years, would ultimately become the basis of later Supreme Court majority opinions, where her thoughts and her legal ideas become the law of the land. She certainly wasn't the most progressive member, probably Sonia Sotomayor is. Um, and in the last years, she sided with the conservative majority when it came to building a natural gas pipeline, when it came to approving the Trump administration's policy of expediting de uh, deportation of people uh, seeking asylum, uh, even, uh, well, ultimately apologized for calling uh, Colin Kaepernick's move uh, to take a knee dumb. I think that the ways that we misapprehend Ruth Bader Ginsburg are really at the core of what you just said, which is I really, truly believe that she was the most small-c conservative radical on the court, and that if you thought she was out on the hustings, burning her bra, breaking things down, taking things apart, then you kind of missed the real story, because she was fundamentally a creature of the 1950s and 60s. She was very, very much not a 70s radical, certainly not a pink pussy hat radical. She was someone who, when she was on the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, the lower federal court, aligned her votes with Robert Bork and Antonin Scalia more than anyone else. She was fundamentally a moderate, centrist, often conservative jurist. She was very, very, very much given uh, a, a knock for not hiring nearly enough minority clerks. All of that is part of the Had picture. Had one African-American uh, clerk as a Supreme Court justice. And, and, and I think we have to be very, very honest about the fact that she was both the architect of the gender equality world we live in now, and also that she was very, very effective in part because she was a get-along person. She was very much conciliatory, always cared about decorum, meeting people where they were. She was both those things, Amy, and I think in some ways we have to respect both parts of it. 
While everybody is focusing on abortion, uh, the Supreme Court, I mean, if you look back at the history of the Supreme Court and what the Supreme Court did the last time it was seriously hardcore conservative, which was in the years leading up to 1937, what was referred to as the Lochner Court. It started with this Lochner decision, as I recall, in 1905. And although the Lochner Court is, you know, generally viewed as kind of more or less broadly in that time, it could do massive damage to the entire spectrum of American life. Ever since the 1930s, Social Security, the Social Security Act was signed, as I recall, in 1935. Literally since that day, Republicans have been trying to, to destroy Social Security. Donald Trump now says if he's reelected president, that within three years, Social Security will be dead because he's going to cut off its funding. And that doesn't seem to be bothering Republicans. I mean, this is just kind of mind-boggling, really. But he might not even have to wait three years if he gets a right-wing Supreme Court justice. Because, you know, the Supreme Court could easily say, well, there's nothing in the Constitution that mentions Social Security. Yeah, it does talk about the general welfare, but uh, in fact, several times. But, hey, we get to decide what that means. I mean, since the 1960s, Medicare and Medicaid, these two health care programs, the Lyndon Johnson and the Democrats, without a single Republican vote, as I recall, I may be wrong on that, but I'm pretty sure if the, at the very least, very few Republican votes, Medicare and Medicaid were passed. And Republicans have, ever since then have been saying that that's socialism. And not only that, right now, the this administration, the Trump administration, along with 20 other Republican secretaries of state or attorney generals or governors, I believe it's AGs and governors, have a lawsuit before the Supreme Court that they were supposed to hear this spring. And as a giant wet kiss to, to, to Donald Trump, John Roberts said, you know, we'll just postpone hearing this case until after the election. But it's basically, you know, a case that says that Obamacare is wrong. And that's one that's particularly mind boggling, because if Obamacare gets blown up by this decision, and by the way, it went to the Fifth Circuit Court, that's a a Texas judge, a Texas appeals court said, yes, the entire thing is unconstitutional. It's unconstitutional to force insurance companies to pay claims for people who have pre-existing conditions. It's unconstitutional to tell insurance companies that they can't collude with hospitals to engage in surprise billing of people. It's unconstitutional to tell insurance companies that they can't have higher prices for women than for men. It's unconstitutional to say that insurance companies have to cover kids, even non-dependent kids, until they're 27 years old. All those things, all that stuff in the Affordable Care Act, it's unconstitutional for the government to help pay part of your health expense, your health insurance costs. All of that stuff is unconstitutional. So this lower court blew up literally the entire Affordable Care Act, including the protections for people who have pre-existing conditions. And by the way, we now have several million people in America with COVID, which is now a pre-existing condition. So if, and this decision, uh, this case is going to be heard by the Supreme Court after the election. And right now there's eight justices on the court. And even if Roberts joins the liberals, the three liberals, you know, Breyer, Kagan, and Sotomayor, even if Roberts joins them, so it's a four to four decision, that means that the court basically doesn't decide, which means that that lower court decision which eliminated Obamacare altogether, including the protections for pre-existing conditions, that ruling will stand. No more Obamacare. But it goes beyond that. I mean, I think that this court could take out Medicare and Medicaid. Numerous Republicans, you know, Rand Paul's kind of at the forefront of this, but this is has become Republican ideology. Of course, you know, David Koch ran for president on this back in 1980s and all the minimum wage laws, and long-term unemployment insurance, and the child labor laws, the new excuse that Republicans are using is the old excuse. Well, what about kids who grow up on farms? That was the excuse that they used to say we shouldn't have child labor laws back in the 1930s when the Supreme Court struck down child labor laws. And, you know, now they're at it again. 
Since the Reagan revolution, Republicans have systematically torn apart our public schools. Uh, the state of Michigan, where Betsy DeVos is from, and where her money has huge political influence. Over half their schools have now been privatized in Michigan. With a conservative court, we could see basically the end of any sort of reasonably functioning public school system nationwide. Are you concerned about climate change? Driving massive fires, storms, hurricanes? A conservative court could rule that any law or any policy, for that matter, designed to reduce carbon emissions are an unlawful violation of uh, refiners and drillers and frackers' constitutional right to do business. It, 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 with a truly conservative court, and frankly, I think with at least several of these women that Donald Trump is considering, you could lose your right to be protected from being ripped off by a bank, that's the, uh, the Consumer Protection uh, Bureau. You could lose your, your right to be protected by government from your insurance company ripping you off. You could lose what few rights you have left to prevent yourself from getting ripped off by your internet service provider or even your utilities if they're for-profit corporations. They could roll back gay marriage and invalidate a whole bunch of marriages all across the United States. They could end altogether the right of labor unions even to exist, take us back to where we were before the passage of the Wagner Act in the early 1930s, the National Labor Relations Act. They could endorse privatization of the post office. I mean, literally all of these are positions that are currently held by various high-profile conservative think tanks and movement leaders, and they all reflect positions that David Koch ran for vice president on in 1980 and that are now embraced by some of these hardcore Republicans, including some currently in Congress. One of the most confounding things about our current media landscape is not just that there's bias and that people can retreat into their own self-reinforcing media bubbles, it's that those bubbles are often not even talking about the same things. We don't just get a different angle on stories, we get different stories entirely. Well, Ground News is here to act as your personal looking glass to see through to the other side. The mission of Ground News is to provide transparency in media bias by labeling every news story from every media outlet with a bias rating backed by deep analytical research by independent media tracking organizations. The side benefit of this is that once you've labeled every story for its bias, it's really easy to figure out which stories are only being seen by one side of the political spectrum or the other. They call it the blind spot, and it is my favorite feature of theirs. Check it out for yourself to see what I mean. And to use all of the features of the Ground News app with no limits and receive their weekly blind spot newsletter, you're going to want to sign up for Ground News Premium. Just head to ground.news/best. As an exclusive limited time offer, you can sign up today and get seven days free of their premium service. Listeners of Best of the Left will also get an extra 25% off their membership making it less than $2 a month billed yearly. So what are you waiting for? That's ground.news slash best. Ground.news slash best. You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, voting is not enough. Help flip the Senate. As of the publishing of this episode, we have exactly one month left until Election Day, just 28 days. Visit bestoftheleft.com slash 2020action to explore our election action guide, which we're calling Voting is Not Enough, because it's just not. From the last two years of Obama's presidency through today, we've witnessed the true power of Senate control. Besides his unprecedented refusal to confirm Merrick Garland, Mitch McConnell made it his life's mission to block Obama's district and circuit judge appointments. Then, he helped Trump ram 50 of them through, many unqualified, including Amy Coney Barrett. Only a tiny percentage of cases get to the Supreme Court, and the appellate courts are the filter, making the quality and fitness of those judges critical to a healthy judiciary branch. 
It's not sexy, but the left must care about the courts. The Senate's control of the judicial confirmation process makes its power immense. McConnell has abused this power to the full extent, subverting the Constitution and trampling norms. If he still leads the Senate under a Joe Biden administration, we know exactly what we're in for. So today, we're focusing on what it will take to flip the Senate, because with everything we have to fix and protect and the looming threat of a hard-right court, electing Joe Biden without flipping the Senate would be nothing short of a disaster. The good thing is that the Senate advantage is with the Democrats this year, as Republicans have to defend 23 seats, twice that of Democrats. Swing Left, the political action organization that helped deliver the blue wave in the 2018 midterms, has a plan. They call it the Super State Strategy, focusing on 12 states that are each critical to flipping the White House, the Senate, and the State Houses key to rolling back Republican gerrymandering. These states are Arizona, Colorado, Florida, Georgia, Iowa, Maine, Michigan, North Carolina, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Texas, and Wisconsin. In addition to volunteering your time with Swing Left to phone bank, text, and write letters, you can also donate strategically. Donate to the Swing Left Immediate Impact Fund, which sends your donations to the candidates in the closest races among the superstates, or choose a superstate and your donations will support races up and down the ballot in that state. Beyond the super states, there are some surprisingly close Senate polls coming out of other very red states. The Democratic Senate candidates in Alaska, Montana, South Carolina, and Mississippi are all within one percentage point of Republican incumbents in the polls. In Kansas, the open seat Senate race was within two points until the Koch brothers group dropped a giant cash infusion. Turnout in these states is key, and a little momentum could go a long way. In terms of defending Democratic seats, Senator Doug Jones will likely lose in Alabama, but in Michigan, Senator Gary Peters just took back a lead in the polls. And finally, although Trump's Supreme Court nominee's confirmation looks very likely, it's not a done deal yet. According to Indivisible's Senate whip count, there are still 13 senators whose confirmation vote is undecided or unknown. Go to scotuswhipcount.org to see the latest and use the tools to contact those on the fence. So here's the bottom line. Any hope of a real course correction depends on winning not just the White House, but the Senate, too. And as long as we do the necessary work, it's within reach. Don't wait. Get involved today. The segment notes include all the links to this information, as well as additional resources. And once again, this segment is available on the Voting Is Not Enough page at bestoftheleft.com slash 2020 action. So if making sure we don't start the post-Trump era with a lame duck Democratic president is important to you, be sure to spread the word about helping flip the Senate via swing left so that others in your network can spread the word too. Do you see the breeze blowing? Can you feel the winds have changed? Do you smell the scent of roses or does rotten air remain? Do you feel the time has come when we rectify what's wrong? Putting all where it belongs as we stand up and be strong. Because it's time to make a difference in this fickle world of change. President Trump has nominated the conservative federal judge Amy Coney Barrett to the Supreme Court to fill Ruth Bader Ginsburg's seat. Barrett is a 48-year-old former Notre Dame law professor who clerked for the late Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia. On Saturday, Barrett spoke alongside President Trump at the White House. I clerked for Justice Scalia more than 20 years ago, but the lessons I learned still resonate. His judicial philosophy is mine, too. A judge must apply the law as written. Judges are not policymakers, and they must be resolute in setting aside any policy views they might hold. Senate Democrats have slammed Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell for proceeding on Barrett's nomination so close to the election. In 2016, McConnell refused to hold confirmation hearings for Merrick Garland, President Obama's pick to replace Scalia, who had died nearly nine months before the election. At the time, McConnell said, quote, the American people should have a voice in the selection of their next Supreme Court justice, unquote. But now Republicans are racing to get Barrett confirmed at a time when early voting has already begun. In some states, the Senate Judiciary Committee plans to start Barrett's confirmation hearing on October 12th. A full Senate vote could occur as soon as October 22nd. If Barrett's confirmed by Election Day, she'll immediately take part in a major case that could determine the future of the Affordable Care Act. On November 10th, the oral arguments will be heard. Three years ago, she wrote a law review article criticizing Chief Justice John Roberts upholding the ACA, writing, quote, Chief Justice Roberts pushed the 
Affordable Care Act beyond its plausible meaning to save the statute, unquote. Well, on Sunday, Democratic presidential nominee Joe Biden criticized Trump's nomination of Barrett. It's no mystery about what's happening here. President Trump is trying to throw out the Affordable Care Act, and he's been trying to do it for the last four years. Amy Coney Barrett could also help decide who wins the presidential election. Last week, Trump said he expects the election to end up before the Supreme Court, saying that's why he's pushing the Senate to rapidly confirm a replacement for Ginsburg. Twenty years ago, Barrett worked with George W. Bush's legal team on the contested Florida recount. Two other future Supreme Court justices at the time, John Roberts and Brett Kavanaugh, also helped Bush's team, which actively worked to stop a recount. Amy Coney Barrett has a record of taking conservative stances on abortion, gun rights and immigration. She once called abortion always immoral. The human rights campaign has called her an absolute threat to LGBTQ rights. During her confirmation hearing, Senate Democrats are also expected to ask questions about her membership in a secretive Catholic group called People of Praise. Members of the group pledge a lifelong loyalty oath to the group, which assigns each member a personal advisor known as Heads for Men and, until recently, Handmaids for Women. In a moment, we're going to Alexis McGill-Johnson, president and CEO of Planned Parenthood. Um, but we are staying with Ellie Mistel for a few minutes right now, the nation's justice correspondent. Ellie, you wrote um, a piece that is headlined, Amy Coney Barrett is an extremist, just not the kind you think. Explain. Yeah, so there are a lot of people who are who are who kind of started where you ended, Amy, where they kind of focus on her religious conservatism and her you know her membership in this group and the fact that she has written extensive law review articles about what Catholic judges should do and shouldn't do um, while um, while on the bench, and so people have kind of focused in on the religious conservatism of her nomination, and I just wanted to to focus people on the issue that. That her religious conservatism is not what's extreme about her. It's her actual judicial opinions. In fact, she only uses the religion card, the religion angle, when it serves her particular purpose in terms of policy against you know, abortion rights or LGBTQ rights. Overall, she does not use her religion to guide her through her decisions. She uses her extremist conservative views to guide her through her decision. It's not a religious position to deny people seeking public assistance a green card. It's Amy Coney Barrett's position to do that. That's that's her that's her deal. It's not a religious position to ignore the deliberate indifference to human life when a prison guard shoots shotgun shells into a crowded cafeteria. That's Amy Coney Barrett's position to ignore the deliberate indifference to human life. So she has a bunch of extreme conservative positions that make her a problematic nominee far beyond her religious affiliations and whatever. Quite frankly, I don't care about her religion. I care about her decisions. Of course, she can also weigh in on uh, the election if, in fact, the presidential election goes to the Supreme Court. Yes, to be clear, Donald Trump could have nominated Atticus Finch, and I would oppose the nominee, because having a nominee to take office— in the middle of an election. I mean, people are saying like, oh, right before the election. It's not right before the election. The election has started. People are voting, right? So he's what Trump is trying to do is pick his own judge in a contested election about his own presidency that, as we talked about in the last second, he kind of has to win or else he's going to jail, right? So that is not how the system of laws and government is supposed to work. So there is no person that I think Trump should be allowed to nominate in these circumstances because of the election issue and because of the timing of the nomination. Amy Coney Barrett is, of the people that Trump could have nominated, Amy Coney Barrett is one of the most extreme people that he could have been nominated as opposed to a kind of moderate middle of the road person. Uh, and so obviously, I think there's a lot of justified concern that if she gets to the court, she will be a fifth vote in favor of handing Donald Trump the presidency. 
We're going to talk with Alexis McGill-Johnson, head of Planned Parenthood, in just a minute about abortion and, the, um, and Obamacare, uh, which is going before the Supreme Court on November 10th. But I wanted to yeah. ask you, Ellie, about one major case set to come before the court, Fulton versus Philadelphia, which involves religious freedom and gay rights that could have much broader implications. The case brought by Catholic Social Services, a faith-based group, which refuses the placement of foster children to same-sex couples. The group was one of 30 agencies that the city of Philadelphia contracted with to place abused and neglected children in foster homes. But the city ended the contract after learning that CSS denied placement of children with same-sex couples. And the charity then sued Philadelphia, citing a violation of free religious exercise and free speech if they were forced to provide services to LGBTQ couples. Oral arguments scheduled for November 4th. Explain the significance of this case. This is one of the most important cases on the Supreme Court docket, and it goes right to the heart of LGBTQ rights and LGBTQ adoption privileges. But it also goes to the heart of a of a new and I think dangerous trend in our First Amendment jurisprudence. The First Amendment's pr uh, protection of freedom of religion is supposed to be a shield, right? It's supposed to protect me, a religious observer, to to allow me to act and support my faith in the privacy of my own home and in and in, in, in my public space, right? What the religious right is trying to do to the First Amendment is to change it from a shield to protect people to a sword to go after people who don't agree with their preferred religion, right? Like that, that's completely flipping the First Amendment on its head. And so what the issue in this, in this Fulton County case is, is the group who discriminates against gay people in adoption. That, that's, that's just what they do. And they're allowed to do that because that's, Freedom of religion means freedom to hate people that you don't like, and so they can hate them or whatever. But what they want to do is to to force the city of Philadelphia to adopt that discrimination, to adopt that bigotry, and make it part of city policy by putting by allowing them to continue to place foster foster children who are wards of the state based on the Catholic Service's bigoted um, decision making in terms of who is able to adopt. Now, so so it's a critically important case for those reasons. The the problem is, and the reason why Amy Coney Barrett doesn't, to me, so much play into this is that liberals were going to lose that case already. There aren't five votes against this kind of corruption of the First Amendment. I don't know that with Ruth Bader Ginsburg uh, 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 passing away, I don't know that there were two votes. Um, because in the past, cases like this, this version of the First Amendment, both uh, Justices Stephen Breyer and Elena Kagan have joined the religious conservatives for this, I, again, I think, corruption of the First Amendment. So with, with RBG gone, I really think it's going to be an 8-1 case with only Sonia Sotomayor standing opposed. Ellie, we just have 30 seconds. What do you think Democrats should be doing right now? everything except for adding legitimacy to the process. You cannot go to these hearings. You cannot add your voice to these processes. You have to do everything you can to delay and then win the White House and win the Senate and expand the court because that's the only way, that, that's the only thing that you can do. As an independent production that depends on the direct financial support of the audience, Best of Left is as vulnerable as everyone else in this time of economic uncertainty. When people can't go to work or get laid off, non-essential expenses are the first to go. We perfectly understand that. So if you can support the show directly on Patreon, that would be amazing and fantastic, and we thank you for that. But there is also a way you can support the show without it costing you any money. So if you're doing any shopping from the big box store in the sky, you can use our affiliate link and we'll get a cut of the price from everything you purchase. Our affiliate links for the US, UK, and Canadian stores are in the show notes on our website and on the device you're using to listen right now. If you use our link and you're taken to either the homepage or our Alexa skill page, then you have done it right. There's nothing additional you need to do and we will benefit from the shopping you do after that. If you take just a moment to bookmark our link to your country's store on your browser, or even delete the mobile app on your phone and add that link as a button in its place, you can enormously help us get through this health and economic crisis just by doing your regular online shopping. Thanks so much for your support. What can we do in terms of reform? Let's say that President Sanders gets in and says, I saw Brian Fallon 
and he's my guy. I'm gonna, uh, I'm, I'm not only gonna take his list, but whatever he says to uh, in terms of reforming the court, if he's got ideas, I'll do it. What would those ideas be? First of all, we have to pack it, and I say we have to pack it not because I want to be some kind of FDR partisan hack. It's because packing the court is actually the only constitutional tool available. The problem with Pete Buttigieg's plan, the problem with a lot of other really interesting, cool reform ideas is that the Constitution is very clear. The number of Supreme Court justices is not set in the Constitution, but who gets to appoint them is. That's the president. What they're, that they are allowed to serve for life is very clear in the Constitution. So all of your ideas about term limits or what have you, those are constitutionally questionable. And I, as I said in my piece, we have to remember that any Supreme Court reform plan will ultimately be ruled on by the, the current Supreme, Supreme Court. Court stacked as it is with Republicans. So if there's any legal whatever, we can assume the Republicans will protect themselves on the Supreme Court and will not authorize any of these novel, interesting reform plans, the one clear constitutional tool that we have is to increase the number of justices. It has been done multiple times in American history, mainly before the Civil War. I think we started with six, and we went to ten, and then we're back to nine. And quite frankly, the court has, we've already changed the number of the, of justices of the Supreme Court in my lifetime, because Mitch McConnell decided that we could have eight justices instead of nine, as long as a Democrat was president. So we have to change the number. Now, let me ask you just one question, one question about the, about the lifetime uh, appointment. I think uh, Buttigieg's plan had this, and um, I I think uh, Matt Ford's from TNR, like I mentioned, had this uh, feature where it says lifetime appointment to the judiciary. Is it specifically to the Supreme Court? Because there is a theory anyways that what you could do is say, okay, you get to spend eight years or 16 years on the Supreme Court, and then you go back to the appeals court. You're there for a lifetime. You're a judge for life, but you go back to the appeals court. Does, is that or is that too hazy? Do we have to do that the second bite after we pack the court? Then we go back to them with this reform movement. I think that theory is is exactly right. It's a theory that's been promoted by uh, Professor Larry Tribe at Harvard Law School, a constitutional scholar. I agree with it. Roberts isn't going to agree. Okay, that's the real. Well, he's just calling balls and strikes. You, sorry, what? He's just calling balls and strikes, anyways. <laughs> right. Right. The the real politique of it is that if you go to John Roberts and you say, we need to make this reform so basically you Republicans have less power, he's going to say no. And he's the final arbiter on whether or not this theory is constitutional or not. As long as Roberts has the majority, you can't get a novel reform package through him. So I agree that term limits should be theoretically constitutionally possible without a constitutional amendment, but I don't know that I can get five Republicans to agree with me. And if I can't get those at least one of the five Republicans to agree with me, then it doesn't freaking matter what I think, right? Um, so that's my problem with term limits, and that's how I get back to court packing. They don't have the option to disagree with court packing because it's spelled out directly in the damn right. document itself, right? So I, I say we got to pack the courts, but how we pack the courts I think is important. You know, their their plans are just like let's just add two because Gorsuch is illegitimate and Kavanaugh is accused of rape, of attempted rape. I don't think that purely partisan court packing works. I want to blow it up. I want to go to ten more justices. So the Supreme Court has 19 people as opposed to nine, and basically make the Supreme Court look much more like all the other federal courts. People forget, nine is not a magic number. The, the Circuit Court of Appeals from the Ninth Circuit out in California, they have 29 justices, right? Second Circuit where I live, 15. Fifth Circuit in Texas, 17. More justices is a feature throughout our system, except for on the Supreme Court. When you have more justices, that's how you get more moderate opinions. If you're actually interested in moderation, the way you get more moderate opinions is not to find this mythical unicorn moderate judge. It's to have judges who are trying to write opinions that are going to build a coalition of not four of their buddies from the hunting lodge, right. but actually 10 
entirely distinct legal individuals that by its own nature will moderate and circumscribe the opinions of the Supreme Court. So that's the one thing. The second thing it's I should just say it's it's a recognition that there is politicking going on there. And instead of just making it like a back room type of situation, I mean, we're still talking only 19 people, but it definitely opens it up more. It, it, it opens it up more. It makes each one of the things I've said, not in this piece, but I've said in general, it's you can't decrease the power of the Supreme Court, but you can de- nerf the power of any individual judge. Right now, if one of the judges justices dies, it's kind of political malpractice to support a judge of the opposite party because they are so powerful and they're going to be there for 30 years frustrating your agenda potentially the entire time. If you have 19 judges and you think about the vagaries of retirement and death with 19 octogenarians, you know, if somebody passes away and you don't happen to be in power at that moment, that's a bad day, but it's survivable. It's politically survivable, right? Because each individual judge is not going to be as critically important to upholding your agenda. Right now, women's rights hangs on the shoulders of an 87-year-old three-time cancer survivor. It should never be like that. It should never be down to just one. And I think if you have 19 justices, you greatly decrease the chances of that happening. And, uh, but that's only the first part. That's the tip of the spear. The shaft, I got to say, Sam, we desperately need ethics reform on the Supreme Court. I've said this, and it shocks people who don't know when I say it. The Supreme Court is the only court in the entire nation that operates under no ethics rules. Every other court, there are ethical guidelines that the justices must, that the judges must follow, except for the Supreme Court, which is, I think, in a post or a during a Me Too era, is particularly just, are you kidding me? Right. There, there's got to be some rule that says just because you're a member of the Supreme Court does not give you a license to sexually harass people for the rest of your life without accountability. Brett Kavanaugh, in addition to his you know, alleged rape allegations, was subjected to 83 separate ethics complaints about him that were thrown out once he got to the Supreme Court because the Supreme Court has no ethics rules. It could have been a coincidence, Ali. What? It could have been a coincidence. (laughs) Right? I mean, (laughs) if you're not in triple digits, if you're not in triple digits in terms of sexual harassment complaints, (laughs) like, it's probably just a coincidence. I mean, 150, then I start to worry. Right. 83. Right. It's... It's, it's inconscionable to me that we don't have ethics rules for these, for these nine most powerful people. And if you had ethics rules, that to me is also, not only do you kind of at least have some basic accountability when it comes to sexual harassment or abuse or, or whatever, you also, that is the way that you start to maybe break the stranglehold the federal society has on these people, right? Because any re- real ethics guidelines would try to punish or hold accountable judges who have shown bias, right? So it shouldn't be ethical for, for instance, Brett Kavanaugh to do a fundraiser for the Federal Society while he is a sitting Supreme Court judge, which he has done multiple times. It shouldn't be ethical for, say, Clarence Thomas's wife to be on the committee that Donald Trump is asking who needs to be purged from his administration post the Ukraine scandal, which is what she is doing. Because at some point, we're probably going to have a lawsuit about whether or not Trump is allowed to, you know, purge the government, and her husband will be one of the nine people empowered to make that decision. These are some basic ethic rules that apply to a traffic court judge in Peoria that do not apply to the Supreme Court justices. And so changing ethics rules is part of the way to break the partisan stranglehold that the FedSoc has over its people. We 
we've just heard clips today, starting with Democracy Now!, speaking with the director of the documentary RBG about Ginsburg's life and legacy. Democracy Now! also spoke with Dahlia Lithwick about the myth of RBG's radical progressivism. Tom Hartman described many of the lesser-known aspects of American life that the court may soon target. Democracy Now! also spoke with Ellie Mistel about how Barrett's religion is actually one of the least concerning things about her record. And the Majority Report discussed one proposal to remake the Supreme Court by greatly expanding it. All of that was available to everyone, but members also heard some bonus content that everyone else missed out on. The Majority Report also discussed why Democrats aren't fighting harder on the nomination fight so far, and last week tonight laid out the long road ahead to undoing the damage done by a very focused and organized conservative movement. For non-members, those bonus clips are linked in the show notes, and they're part of the transcript for today's episode, so you can still find it there if you want to make that effort. But to hear that and all of our bonus content delivered seamlessly into your podcast feed, sign up to support the show at bestofleft.com support or request a financial hardship membership. Every request is granted, no questions asked. And now... We'll hear from you. This is Tyler Swanson calling from Minneapolis, Minnesota, Jay, and I just listened to your episode on QAnon. One thing that was touched on, but I really want to go into detail on, is the insidiousness of the Save Our Children hashtag. I tracked this kind of from the beginning. I saw it kind of pop up, and it made me curious since there was no news where this came from, and when I discovered that it had to do with QAnon, I had myself a little bit of a crisis. But then the meme started to get more and more violent, and I feel like that is the sort of slow indoctrination of people into this conspiracy ideology to start sort of weaning them into a more violent mindset to make them like more likely to go out and commit acts against, you know, like Pizzagate, where the place got shot up. So kind of watching this progress over the summer has been kind of bone chilling. Thank you for all that you do, and thank you for giving me all of this great information. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their research work on the show. Thanks to the monosyllabic transcriptionist trio, Ben, Dan, and Ken, for their volunteer work helping put our transcripts together. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line or wrote in their messages to be played as voicemails. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can send us a voicemail by email, record a message at 202-999-3991, or simply write me a message at j at bestofleft.com. And just to wrap up today, I, I want to, I'm sort of going to echo some things that John Oliver talks about in the clip that was only for members. If you're not a member and you didn't hear it, it's worth going and finding it and, and watching it on YouTube. What is at the heart of not just fights like this, but the discussion about the Supreme Court or how it should be structured, how our government should be structured, that the heart of it is about designing a system that we can work within that people see as legitimate. It's sort of a sister concept to what I was talking about in a previous commentary recently about voting and how democracy is, it's not really about laws and what's written on paper. It's about the perception of people and how the government derives its power from the consent of the governed, but you can only give your consent if you have a perception that it's going well and that it's legitimate. Because if it's illegitimate, then people are going to repeal their consent, basically. And that's when things get really, really really bad. And so, as we talk about the Supreme Court, that's like the particular window through which we are looking at our government today. But at the heart of this discussion is about maintaining stability and legitimacy of our government. And it's 
awful that we even have to be having a conversation about stability and legitimacy, but I think that that is what is at the core, like the lack of stability, the lack of sense of legitimacy is very much at the core of why things just feel so bad all the time, why there is so much rancor, so much anger, so much partisanship, all of these things that makes American politics so poisonous right now, it all sort of stems from the cracks in the stability and legitimacy of our republic at the moment. And so other windows through which you could look at this would be through you know advocating for things like universal voting. If everyone can vote, then that adds to the legitimacy of the system. If not everyone can vote and people are specifically excluded from voting, that chips away at the legitimacy. Of course, the really particular example regarding voting is the Electoral College. I mean, there's nothing more egregious in a democratic republic than having the person who got less votes win the election. Like, there's just nothing worse than that. And so, again, being in favor of the campaign for the national popular vote is adding legitimacy to the system. Being opposed to a national popular vote, and people have their reasons, they are able to convince themselves that, no, but it's good for small states and you have to give extra weight to the small states, otherwise they'd be run over by the big states. People can talk themselves into it. But at the end of the day, what they are doing is supporting a policy that diminishes the legitimacy of our system. And there is nothing more destructive than that. Also, enfranchisement for all Americans should be obvious, goes hand in hand with letting everyone vote, universal voting. But the fact that D.C. has more than 600,000 people living in it and they just don't have actual representation in Congress is a giant gaping hole in the legitimacy of our system. So again, being in favor of D.C. statehood, Puerto Rico is a little bit more you know, nuanced. There are progressive reasons why people would, you know, living in Puerto Rico would not want to become a state. They may prefer to be independent, and that's that's a whole other discussion. But being in favor of full enfranchisement for all American citizens, meaning that whether it means full statehood or whatever other solution, you shouldn't be an American and not have full representation in Congress and have a full vote for president. It, it just doesn't make sense. And so it was talked about in, in today's show that purely partisan court packing is not a good idea. It's, it's not going to work, and it uh, is probably ultimately counterproductive. And the way that I would describe that is through the lens of legitimacy, because we could convince ourselves, and, and people have, I guess, that, well, you know, they, they stole the seat from Merrick Garland, it should have been Merrick Garland's seat, and Obama should have gotten that Supreme Court nomination, and so we, we're going to take one back. And then, like, for good measure, because Kavanaugh is so obviously problematic and has so many ethical complaints against him that we should get another one for that too so let's go from nine to eleven I, you know I, people who i listen to don't say things like that but i i guess people are sort of lashing out in frustration at the unfairness of the past several years and are throwing out ideas like that and the reason why i played the clip i played is because it was really emphasized that purely partisan hack style court packing isn't going to work and that the only thing that can work is the ideas and you know there, there's not just one of them there's the one we heard in the show today I, I've heard another one that was hoping for a total of 15 justices and they wanted five to be appointed by each party and for the final five to be agreed upon by the justices themselves so it actually takes it out of the realm of, of politics entirely. I don't actually know that that's 
possible. The, the way the Constitution is written, it may be a hard and fast rule that the president has to make the nomination. There may be a way to write that rule and sort of finagle it in there so that it's really up to the existing justices rather than the president. Or, or you know, I guess if you just have a, constitu- um, a constitutional amendment, well, okay, then then you can have whatever rule you want. So what is similar about all the good ideas is that they add to the legitimacy. They lower the rancor, they lower the hyper-partisanship, and increase legitimacy. Because if the Supreme Court can be gamed through partisan hardball tactics like we've seen over the last five years, well, then it's going to lose legitimacy. The, The infrastructure of our government is going to lose legitimacy People on the left who think that the Supreme Court has been stolen from them have a pretty good reason for feeling that way. Now, what do you think is going to happen? People are just going to roll over and, well, let's just play by the rules. Like, eventually, when you push people far enough, terrible things happen. And responsible advocacy, responsible governance should push people towards not ending up in that eventuality and pushing for structural change, like massive structural change that is not based purely on partisanship, because that only serves to perpetuate the fractures in the system. Because, of course, the other side will get their response at some point, and they will feel entirely justified going way over the top in the same way that they will have felt like we went way over the top. So this is kind of a funny conversation to have because we're talking about massive structural changes for the sake of moderation and stability. It, it's a, it's honestly a very strange conversation to talk about creating states that don't currently exist, to talk about working around the Electoral College to talk about changing the makeup of the Supreme Court. These are enormous concepts. They are enormous ideas. And yet, every single one of them, if done in the way that I would like to see it done, adds to stability and actually makes political life in America less interesting, or at least less toxic. So obviously, we're in a moment where we're having legitimate discussions about major changes that need to be had. You know, they're they're happening not just in the progressive echo chamber way over on the left. You know, Democratic politicians in Congress are having these kinds of conversations. And so, when you make an effort to support any ideas like that, I, I would urge everyone to think in the long term and to think not. How can we make progress and get our way in these next five years? But how can we help stabilize a system for the next 50 or 100 years or more? Because frankly, my concern is that the conservative movement, which has enormous financial resources on its side, they are always going to have a much better ability to think long-term and plan long-term, just as they have demonstrated over the last 40 or 50 years. They've had a plan, and they have been working at it this whole time. And we are basically at the end point of that strategy. And it has brought the country to the point of legitimate collapse, where the structures of the government are all being questioned. Money in politics has horribly tainted Congress. The Supreme Court has been flipped by a ruling minority of people representing a very small minority of the country, but who managed to wield power through the way the Senate functions. And two of the last three presidents got into office while losing the popular vote. Like, we are at a very dangerous point in the country. And it's not likely that the go-along-to-get-along, fair-play, good-government lefties 
are ever going to be able to match the right wing in their long-term planning to try to put the country back together in the same way that the right can long-term plan to piece by piece take the government apart. And so the only option we have is to implement structures that can withstand that long-term planning that the right is always going to have an advantage of. So I'm in favor of some pretty radical changes being made to the design of our government, but we're going to get those sort of ideas passed by describing them as not the least bit radical and only trying to stabilize, legitimize, and re-democratize the country. As always, I'd be happy to hear from you on this or anything else. Keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991 or by emailing me at j at bestofleft.com. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships at bestofleft.com slash support. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you twice weekly, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Mm-hmm.